All right, well, I'm excited about our sermon this morning as we continue our series uh, during this summer of the 12 words of the summer. We come to this great word, sanctification. That's a big word, but it basically means the process of becoming holy. One commentator said, sanctification is a continuing work of God in the life of a believer, making him or her actually holy. By holy here is meant bearing actual likeness to God. Sanctification is a process by which one's moral condition is brought into conformity with one's legal status before God. It's a continuation of what was begun in regeneration when a newness of life was conferred upon and instilled within the believer. In particular, sanctification is the Holy Spirit's applying to the life of the believer the work done by Jesus Christ. Another said sanctification is the progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ in our actual lives. The Greek term for sanctify means to set apart. Set apart for God's special use or to make distinct from what is common. Therefore, sanctification is to be made like God who is distinct and, and different from all else. Therefore, he is holy. It's important to point out here at the beginning that the Bible teaches there are three distinct aspects to sanctification. There's a present, a past, and a future aspect of sanctification in, in every believer's life. It can also be described as there's a positional, experiential, or progressive, and final sanctification. The past or positional aspect of sanctification coincides with our moment of salvation. At that point of regeneration, there is this definitive break from the ruling power of sin in our lives. So that every believer is no longer ruled or dominated by sin and no longer loves to sin, but rather loves to pursue becoming like Jesus, becoming more and more holy. In past or positional sanctification, we are declared holy through our union with Christ and have had a decisive break from the power of sin and instead are now under the power of God's grace. 1 Corinthians 1-2 says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, past tense, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Acts 20.32 says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Hebrews 10.10 says, And by that will we have been sanctified to the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every believer stands in the eyes of God, completely set apart, holy, sanctified through Jesus Christ. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we look at Romans uh, chapter 6. The final or future aspect of sanctification is, is when our past or positional aspect of sanctification becomes our reality. The final or future aspect is when we actually are made perfectly holy 
upon our ushering into God's eternal kingdom upon our deaths. When our positional holiness becomes our actual holiness. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Philippians 3.21 says, Who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Romans 8.29 and 30. For those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty and following, it says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall all not sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ, raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then we shall say, then the saying shall come to pass, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death. Where is your sting? The sting of death and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, someday, what we've been given through our union with Christ will be all that we have left. What a great day that is going to be. What a great day that's going to be where we're going to be complete and holy and glorified and perfect union with our God. But for now, we live in a different reality. We linger between what we're declared to be in Christ and our positional holiness and where we will be in Christ in our future holiness. We are in that second aspect of sanctification, the present, the experiential, the progressive aspect of sanctification. We are now in that time when the Holy Spirit is applying to our daily lives that work done by Jesus. We're now in a time that through the yielding of our lives to God, He makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ in our actual lives. Jerry Bridges in his classic book, The Pursuit of Holiness, it's a book that the Lord gave me uh, to read uh, just in my first year of college during the summer. And if you see it, it has, it has um, tar all over it. Because that summer, I worked in the city yard there at Freeport. And, uh, you know, filling potholes and fixing the different things. Driving the big drum trucks. And you imagine me, you know, doing all that. And it was a great experience. This book I would recommend. It's a classic book. The Pursuit of Holiness. God used this book in my life in dramatic ways to change me uh, to be more like his son. This book details some of the very best material on progressive sanctification, what it means and how to go about pursuing it. 
He says, a farmer plows his field and sows the seed and fertilizes and cultivates. All the while knowing that in the final analysis, he is utterly dependent on forces outside of himself. He knows he cannot cause the seed to germinate. Nor can he produce the rain and the sunshine for the growing and harvesting of the crop. For a successful harvest, he is dependent on these things from God. Yet the farmer also knows that unless he diligently pursues his responsibilities to plow and plant and fertilize and cultivate, he cannot expect a harvest at the end of the season. In a sense, he's in a partnership with God and he will reap its benefits only when he has fulfilled his own responsibilities. Farming is a joint venture between God and the farmer. The farmer cannot do what God must do and God will not do what the farmer should do. We can just as accurately say that the pursuit of holiness, progressive sanctification is a joint venture between God and the Christian. No one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in his life. But just as surely, no one will attain it without effort on their own part. God has made it possible for us to walk in holiness. But he has given to us the responsibility of doing the walking. He does not do that for us. We Christians greatly enjoy talking about the provision of God, how Christ defeated sin on the cross and gave us the Holy Spirit to empower us to victory over sin. But we do not as readily talk about our responsibility to walk in holiness. Two primary reasons can be given for this. He said, first, we are simply reluctant to face up to our responsibilities. We prefer to leave that to God. We pray for victory when we know we should be acting in obedience. The second reason is that we do not understand the proper distinction between God's provision and our responsibility of holiness. I think Jerry Bridges nails it in that quote. Spiritual growth, the sanctification process, this this process of becoming, pursuing holiness, is a partnership. That's the way God designed it. That's the way he wants it to be. He does what only he can do, and he asks us to do what he wants us to do. See, spiritual growth doesn't happen by accident. You don't go to bed one night and wake up in the morning and some magical thing has happened to you and now you're just a spiritually mature believer. Spiritual growth doesn't happen that way. Spiritual growth takes discipline. I said the word, didn't I? Discipline. But we're followers of Christ. What are followers of Christ called? disciples. That's where we get this word discipline. This is what it takes. He nailed the struggle for us of why pursuing holiness is so hard. Because first, we don't want to. And second, we don't know how to. Well, later in the book, he says, if holiness is so basic to the Christian life, why do we not experience it more in our daily lives? Isn't that a great question? Listen to that again. If holiness is so basic to the Christian life, why do we not experience it more in our daily lives? Why do so many Christians feel constantly defeated in their struggle with sin? Why does the church of Jesus Christ so often seem more conformed to the world around it than to God? The answer to those questions can be grouped, he said, in three basic problem areas. Our first problem is that our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than God-centered. I bet you never thought about having God-centered sin. 
Have you ever had that thought? God-centered sin? What's he talking about that? So often when we sin, we're so concerned about the focused, and it's all about us. What consequences we might face. What problems we have caused. Even in confessing our sin, we're self-centered, just thinking about ourselves and the consequences of what we've done. When we see our sin from a God-centered way, it's like what the prodigal son said. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Or like what King David said in Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, God-centered sin is when we're grieved not just over our failure, not just over our problems that we have caused, but we are grieved because we have broken the heart of God. We have offended the very one who died for us. We have fallen short of God's provision for us. We have offended His holiness by our sin. See, we need to see our sin first in relation to God that we have broken His heart. The second problem he says that we have is we misunderstand living by faith to mean that no effort at holiness is required on our part. We stop at Galatians 2.20, right there in the middle of the verse. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But the rest of the verse says, and the life I now live, the life I am now actively pursuing and living, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We wrongly apply that adage, let go and let God. Rather, we need to be saying, I did that. We need to be saying, I take personal responsibility for that, and I am now going to live my life by faith and do something about it. The third problem, he says, that is we don't take sin seriously. We tend to categorize sin. Some sins are totally unacceptable. We tolerate other sins. and Sometimes we just totally overlook other sins. Isn't it kind of funny how we, we tend to find other people's sins unacceptable? You know, but our own sins are a little bit more tolerable and, and more easily overlooked. The scripture says in Song of Solomon 2.15, that's the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. It is compromise in the little issues that can lead to greater compromise and lead to greater downfalls. We might say to ourselves, God really doesn't care about the little things. He's only focused on the big things. I can follow God in the big things. I'm doing that. I can just do what I want in the little things. It's amazing how often we subtly think and act this way. Well, why is this wrong? Listen to this description. It's not the importance of the thing, but the majesty of the lawgiver that is the standard of obedience. The principle involved in obedience or disobedience was none other than the same principle which was tried in Eden at the foot of the forbidden tree. Adam and Eve could have thought, come on, God, it's a piece of fruit. I mean, surely God doesn't mind. It's a piece of fruit. God doesn't care. It's a small thing. It's a bite of a piece of fruit. I just want to taste it. I mean, I'm obeying God in all these other areas. Look how good I'm doing in all these other important areas. See, the question is, is is the Lord to be obeyed in all things whatsoever he commands? Is he the holy lawgiver 
Are we as his creatures bound to give our assent to his will? Are we willing to call sin, sin? Not because it's big, or not because it's little, but because it's God's law and he forbids it. Because it's an affront to God's holiness and it breaks his heart. We cannot categorize sin if we're going to strive to live a life of holiness. We cannot categorize sin if we're going to progress in our sanctification. If we're going to pursue God. Do we take sin seriously? Do we see it as an affront to God's holiness and love? Do we see it as an insult to the cross of Christ that saved us? Even at the level of eating a piece of fruit? Or do we justify our actions? Do we make light of our sin? You know, it's no big deal. Do we shirk our responsibility? Do we blame someone else for our actions? If we have any hope of growing in holiness, if we have any hope of becoming more like Christ, if we have any hope of progressing in our sanctification, the first step is to recognize, to be brutally honest with ourselves about our sin. How about you? Are you brutally honest with yourself about your sin? That's exactly where Romans 6 starts. Romans 6 gives us four steps on a path towards sanctification. So open your Bibles with me there to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, verses 1 through 10. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. The first step down the Romans road to sanctification is to know. There are three things in this passage that we're to know that are facts that all Christians are, that are detailed for us in this passage. The first there is in verse 3. It says that we know that all who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. The word baptism here is not talking about water baptism. It's talking about being united, about being connected with Christ, as verse 5 uh, details for us. When Jesus died, we died. Think about that. When Jesus died, we died. When Jesus was raised from the dead, we were raised from the dead with him to walk in newness of life. As believers, we are so united with Jesus that on the cross and in his resurrection, it is as if we were there. We are so connected to what he accomplished, it's as if it happened to us there. The second no is in verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ, breaking the bonds of enslavement to sin. 
We are so united with Christ in his crucifixion that our old self, our sin nature, has been dealt a mortal wound. We, we have, as Christians, more power over sin than sin has over us because the death of our Savior has set us free from sin. Verse 7 says, For the one who has died has been set free from sin, and we have died with Christ. The last thing we know in our passage today is from verse 9. It says, Jesus conquered death and sin through his death and resurrection. The death he died broke the power of sin, and the resurrection broke the power of death. These verses, these three things we know, these are facts. This is reality for us as believers. They describe our present position in Christ. Our positional sanctification, that first aspect of sanctification. Now think about these truths with me. As believers, we're united with Christ in his death and and in his resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection weren't just what he did for me, but what he did to me. See, Jesus' death and resurrection weren't just what he did for me, but it's what he did to me. Remember how Paul put it there in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We are so united with Christ in his death and resurrection. It is as if those very acts of his death and resurrection happened to us. What Jesus did was so powerful, so amazing, so life-changing, so transformational that at our salvation, we no longer live. Christ lives in us. And by the virtue and power of Christ living in us, his victory is our victory. His conquering death is our conquering death. His breaking the power and enslavement of sin is our breaking the power of enslavement of sin. His resurrection is our resurrection to new life. Folks, powerful, amazing teaching. I wish I could teach it better. Because so often we feel defeated. So often we feel powerless. So often we feel overcome in our Christian lives. Did Christ walk around feeling that way? Was Jesus ever overcome by his life circumstances and felt powerless? Since he was not, and since we are united with him in his power over sin, his victory over death, his resurrection to new life, we already have all that we could ever need to live a godly life. We already have it. All that we need to pursue holiness, to progress in our sanctifications, we have it because we have been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. You know, that word positional and positional sanctification is so inadequate to describe the position that we're in. It sounds like we're sitting in an easy chair somewhere. It sounds so staid and stoic. But it's more like this. As I was thinking about this, it's more like we're positioned at the top of the very first hill of a roller coaster. Been there, right? It kind of pauses there, that half a second before it goes over, and you're there at the top of the hill of that roller coaster. When you're sitting there in that position, in that position of power, you're sitting there with all the energy, all the power, all the momentum you need to ride that ride to its completion. Do you have the spiritual energy to live a growing and dynamic life for Jesus Christ? Yes, you do. 
Do you have the spiritual power to live a life conquering sin? Yes, you do. Do you have the spiritual momentum in your life to live a life that is pleasing to God up to the very end? Yes, you do. We do. We have it because we've been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. We have it because he has it and he's given it to us. Well, after saying all these amazing things, all these facts that are true for every believer, for each one of us, Paul says in verse 11, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The next step is to consider, to count, to reckon. What Paul is saying is that we're supposed to take all that he just said that are facts about us, that we know now about our powerful position in Christ, and we're supposed to consider that. We're supposed to apply that to our lives. We're supposed to judge it as true, to count it as true for us, to reckon it, to believe it's true, that we are dead to sin. We are alive in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter an inch in our practical lives all of what Christ has done for us if we don't take the truth and count it as true, reckon it as true, apply it to our lives. Sitting on the top of the hill of a roller coaster is not the same thing as riding the roller coaster. Those are two different things. Saying you believe in Jesus and all that he's done for you is not the same thing as applying that truth to your life. Living it out that you are dead to sin and you're alive to God. We must take the facts of our powerful position in Christ from potential energy to kinetic energy. From facts to living faith. From truth to living principles. From what we know to how we live. That's where the next step in our journey uh, down the path of sanctification takes us there to present, to offer to you. Verses 12 through 14. It says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Because of the fact of being united with Christ, Christ has broken the power of sin and provided for us new life. Because we now consider these facts to be true for our lives and applying them to our lives, Paul says, therefore, don't let sin reign in your bodies. Don't obey the desires and the wants of sin. Well, how do we do that, Paul? What do we do? We present ourselves to God rather than to sin. We don't yield or offer our bodies, our thoughts, our attitudes to sin, but rather we yield, we offer our bodies, our thoughts, our attitudes to God. Sin's curse and power has been broken. It's no longer our master. We are no longer under the burden of the law, but, but through Christ we are in the freedom of his grace. We're in the power of his forgiveness. We're under the, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the acceptance of his love. Well, how do you present yourself to God rather than to sin? Well, the old King James word here helps me out a lot. And in the King James, the word is yield. 
To yield is to offer someone the right of way. Right? When you come to a yield sign, and the yield sign's facing you, you're supposed to be prepared to stop and let the other person go first. The other person has a priority. The other person has the right of way. The other person goes first. So when it comes to yielding ourselves to God, when it comes to my thoughts and my attitudes, my body, and yielding them to God, He has the priority. He has the right of way. What He wants comes first. How do we grow in our Christian walk? How do we progress in our sanctification? We take this powerful position that we are in Christ. We apply it to our lives and we yield our thoughts, our actions to God, to His right of way and what He wants and not what sin wants. So we have to question ourselves. Are we yielding ourselves to God? Are we giving Him the right of way in our life? Is what He wants, does that come first? Is that what we want, what He wants? Pursuing sanctification is putting our position into practice, yielding our lives, our thoughts, our attitudes, our bodies to God. Well, that final step toward the path of sanctification mentioned there in Romans 6 is the word obey, starting at verse 15. It says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. God forbid. May it never be. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of our natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What powerful words. You know, we all have this tendency to think of ourselves as autonomous, right? As kind of kings and queens of our, of our own lives, of our own kingdoms. We like to think that we're free to live however we want, to choose whatever we want. But this passage challenges us to recognize that we're all followers of one way or another. But in reality, we're all obedient. In reality, we are all slaves. As Paul said, humanly speaking, to whomever we obey, we are enslaved. Since we all obey, since we're all enslaved, the question isn't, are you free or are you enslaved? But to whom are you obeying? To who are you enslaved? Remember that famous 
Bob Dylan song, you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody, he said. It might be the devil. It might be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. Listen to these verses again. Look at verses 16 through 18. Think now. Try to put these thoughts together. Do you not know that if we present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you are once slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin and become a slave of righteousness. Though we were once slaves to sin, we have become obedient from our hearts to God and we have become a slave, a servant of righteousness. The Apostle Paul often calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a willing servant, a willing slave of Christ. He bound his life to Christ's. We've been set free from sin through all that Jesus did, and we have willingly, by the obedience of our hearts, become servants, become slaves, bondservants of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? The fruit of a life like that leads to sanctification. It leads to a growing reality of actual Christ-likeness in our lives. For the wages of sin, what you earn when you're enslaved to sin is death. But when you accept that free gift of God, eternal life through Jesus Christ, through all that he has done, through his death and his resurrection, and you go to him by faith, believing and accepting and all of that that he has done, And then we willingly and wantingly reflect from our hearts a a desire for obedience, a desire to serve, a desire to follow, a desire to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So who are you obeying? Sin and selfishness? God and his word. You're going to have to serve somebody. So who is it? Well, Nita Friedman. Not the type of person you would imagine being involved in a police pursuit. Still, that's what happened on U.S. Highway 95 after Bonners Ferry, Idaho Chief Police, Police Mike Hutter, tried to stop her for reckless driving. Hutter flipped on his lights and sirens, and instead of pulling over, the 66-year-old woman pulled away. Police chased the woman through two counties. and The chase didn't end until after the state police put down spike strips in the road in front of Friedman's car. After driving over it, the woman tried to keep going, but with with three flat tires, escape became impossible. What astounded the law enforcement officers was that throughout the whole 15-mile chase, Friedman never went over the speed limit. Once she even stopped as a vehicle was making a left-hand turn. While running from the law... Nita Friedman was determined not to break the law. Now think about that. Don't we often do that in our relationship with God? Think about that. Apply that to ourselves. We are so sure to obey God in certain areas of our lives. Even while we allow ourselves to disobey God in other areas of our lives. 
Folks, if we're going to pursue holiness, if we're going to progress in sanctification, then we need to yield it all. A-L-L, all of it. We need to be all in with God. We need to strive for obedience in all of our lives. We need to see even the smallest of sins, like eating a forbidden piece of fruit, that it has serious repercussions because we serve and worship a holy God. Evaluate this day. Think. Where are you holding back? What is Christ calling you to yield to him today? Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you thanking you so much for Romans chapter 6. Help us apply these truths to know, to reckon, to yield, obey, to know, to reckon, to yield, obey in our lives. Daily as we are confronted with sin, the power of sin has been broken, but the presence of sin, the lure of sin is still there within us. Lord, but we, through Jesus, have been given the ability to say no, to yield our members to you rather than yielding our thoughts and our actions to sin. Lord, help us do that. Help us pursue holiness. Help us to to desire sanctification at the depth of who we are. Help us to see our sin as sin against you. Lord, change us this day to be more like Jesus in our actual lives. In Jesus' name, amen.